It is millions of years ago, and a big fucking rock is falling out of the sky. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. To another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of orhistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit orhistory.com and click Donate. According to NASA, a meteor is any of the small particles of matter in the solar system that are directly observable only by their incandescence from friction heating on entry into the atmosphere. They define a meteorite as a meteor that reaches the surface of the Earth without being completely vaporized. So basically, the big old rock in our story today is principally a big fucking rock from outer space. A long time ago, in the solar system that now currently houses Oregon, perhaps a billion years ago, a meteorite fell, likely in today's Canada or Montana. Perhaps 13 to 20,000 years ago, it was deposited in the Willamette Valley during an inundation from the Missoula floods. And there it sat, just doing whatever the fuck big celestial rocks do. The meteorite has been described as having a flattened semicircular shape with a predominant hump shape toward the top and huge cavities throughout its surface. The meteorite is comprised of 91% iron and about 8% nickel with scant amounts of cobalt and phosphorus stirred into the celestial slurry. This iron composition lent itself to rust, of course, which along with water erosion helped to create the distinctive cavities on the face of the meteorite. Oh, and this particular meteorite? It's big. Really big. Really fucking big. The measurements are 10 feet tall by 6.5 feet wide and over 4 feet deep. And it weighs a ton. Well, technically, a shit ton, or more accurately, several shit tons. The Willamette meteorite weighs in at 32,000 pounds, or 15 and a half tons. It is the largest meteorite ever found in the United States and the sixth largest in the world. The Clackamas Indians called the meteorite Tamanawos, which meant heavenly visitor or visitor from the moon. Their traditions realized that they had maintained and utilized the celestial object for their tribal customs and to help them in the hunt and in warfare. 
Healing and purifying rituals were conducted with the meteorite as a central component. The iron-rich rainwater which accumulated in the crevices was considered big medicine, literally in a vessel from the moon, and they would journey to the meteorite and splash this water on their faces and dip their arrows in it, assuring martial success. They believed that a union occurred of the earth, the sky, and the water when it rested on the ground and rainwater collected in its many folds and basins. Certain times of the year, on dark nights, the Clackamas would send their young men to the meteorite for initiation rituals. As far back as there have been Clackamas peoples, they incorporated the meteorite into their traditions. But Whitey, it seems, had different plans for the big-ass rock. First, theft, of course. Then, naturally, commercial exploitation. I mean, job creation. In 1902, Ellis Hughes, a farmer and prospector who lived in the area we know now as West Lynn, enters our story. According to the Oregonian, Hughes bore the honor of being the only mortal on record who ran away with a 14-ton meteorite. While on land joining his parcel, land owned by the Oregon Iron and Steel Company, Ellis Hughes sat down on a big-ass rock. He noticed it was peculiar, and being a prospector, he knew it had iron in it. The big-ass rock became a topic of discussion with a friend of his, Bill Dale, the very next day. As Hughes recounted years later, the conversation went something like this. Bill Dale came by and said, Hughes, you seen this rock before? Yes, I said, I saw it yesterday. Then I picked up a large white stone and started to hammer on the rock. It rang like a bell. Hughes, Dale said to me, I'll bet that's a meteor. So Dale and Hughes decided that they would buy the land that the meteor lay on from Oregon Iron and Steel. But there was just one issue with that plan. Both prospectors were broke. So Dale took off to Eastern Oregon to raise some funding. And he never came back. And since Hughes couldn't come up with the cash to make an offer to Oregon Iron and Steel on his own, he made the next most logical decision one can make about a 32,000-pound meteorite. He would steal it. Hughes lay the blame for the decision squarely on someone else. It would probably be there yet, but for my wife. Well, you know how women are. She had ideas. She was afraid someone would go up and get it the next day. Nonetheless, Hughes laid his plans well, and burglary became his bitch. In August of 1903, Hughes began excavating to heavenly degree. He and his teenage son, concealed them clandestinely, using just basic tools, freed the 16-ton meteorite from the earth. Next, they built a wagon from rough-hewn logs. The cart was so country that the wheels were crafted from tree trunks. Using jacks, they managed to lever the meteorite from the hole and onto the wagon. Hughes then sunk a pole in the ground, and using it as a capstan, he attached a steel cable to the cart and the other end to his horse. 
the horse would walk around and around and around and around and around and around and around the post, and the cable would slowly move the wagon. It moved inches at a time, laboriously slow, and Hughes had to re-anchor the post every hundred feet or so. The ground was, well, so Oregon-y that he had to lay a wooden plank road for his enterprise. The meteorite had to be moved three-quarters of a mile, and Hughes and his son did just that. It took them three months. Once the meteorite was safely on Hughes' side of the property line, he and his son built a shack over the Curiosity. They started something like a sideshow attraction and began charging visitors 25 cents to view the oddity. In a cruel twist of fate, one of their first customers was a lawyer for the Oregon Iron and Steel Company, who deduced that the massive peculiarity had come from his client's land, perhaps due to the obviously rutted path from Hughes' shack to a giant fucking hole in the ground on the company's property. The attorney confronted Hughes and told him that he had figured out the theft, and even though the meteorite belonged to his client, he was willing to give Hughes $50 for the return of the rock. Hughes tossed the lawyer from his sideshow shack. Oregon Iron and Steel filed suit, and the Oregon courts would decide the ownership of this meteorite. Hughes' attorney laid out an interesting argument. He demonstrated by having several ancient Indians testify to the cultural significance of the ancient meteorite for the Clackamas peoples, that the Indians had prior claim to ownership of the meteorite and not Oregon iron and steel. The problem was that the Clackamas people were no longer an actual tribal entity, mainly due to disease. In 1855, when the Grand Ronde Reservation was created, only 88 Clackamas signed the treaty. By 1870, only 44 Clackamas were affiliated with the reservation, and very few of them left the reservation to visit sacred sites. Then, Hughes' lawyer tried to tackle the fuzzy definition of ownership of something that had fallen from the sky. He demonstrated that the meteorite may have fallen somewhere else and been carried by glaciers to the site. Maybe the Indians had transported it from somewhere else. Hughes' lawyer concluded that the string of possession was so murky that Hughes should be classified as a discoverer of the meteorite, say, much like finding an arrowhead or shards of Navajo pottery that weigh 32,000 pounds. Oregon Iron and Steel's argument about the meteorite's ownership was pretty straightforward. Hughes fucking stole it. Plain and simple. We want it back. As you might have guessed, the court ruled in favor of the company. They sent a team of horses to go to the shack and started hauling away the meteorite. Hughes was able to quickly get an appeal into the Oregon Supreme Court and also obtained an injunction as the rock was being hauled away. While the appeal was being conducted, the company hired a 24-hour guard, armed, to sit atop the meteorite. And just to make the case even a little bit more screwy, Hughes' next-door neighbor filed another lawsuit. He claimed the meteorite was his, and he had the hole to prove it. 
He showed investigators this giant fucking hole that he claimed the meteorite had been stolen from. But alas, his neighbors told investigators that they'd heard quite a bit of blasting as of late from the man's property. On July 17, 1905, the Oregon Supreme Court ruled that the object belonged to Oregon Iron and Steel. Chief Justice Wolverton stated that, Meteorites, though not embedded in the earth, are real estate, and consequently belong to the owner of the land on which they are found. The Willamette meteorite was to be returned to the company. The meteorite would then make a grand appearance on Oregon's center stage, and then, in defiance of its provenance for perhaps the last 20,000 years, be forever removed from Oregon's soil. In 1900-1902 or so, the business merchants of Portland decided that their fine city needed a boost. A real boost. A big boost. So they decided to host a centennial, marking the anniversary of the Lewis and Clark expeditions passing through Portland. The Lewis and Clark exposition ran from June 1st to October 15th, 1905. It was built on land created by filling in Guilds Lake in northwest Portland. And who do you think made an exalted appearance at the Mines and Metallurgy Building? That's right, the Willamette Meteorite. An eight-team wagon brought the massive meteorite to the site. It was unveiled from under the stars and stripes and made quite an impression. The governor attended the unveiling, and it has been reported that it was announced that the meteorite would forever stay in Oregon, its home state. But this state treasure was also seen at the expo by a New York socialite by the name of Mrs. William E. Dodge II, and she purchased it from Oregon Iron and Steel for $28,000. She then donated the meteorite to the American Museum of Natural History, and the artifact was transported to New York City, where it sits to this day in the Dorothy and Louis B. Coleman Hall of the Universe. In a recent agreement acknowledging the Grand Ronde's traditional connection to the meteorite, the tribe is allowed access to the sacred object, and the museum has agreed not to let the Willamette object fall into other hands if not on display. On the day I went away Goodbye. Was all I had to say The communications department of the American Museum of Natural History did not respond to our requests for an interview. Two sentences from two newspaper articles during the Hughes original lawsuit, over a century ago, caught my attention while researching this Oregon issue. The first reads, If the plaintiff in the case wins out in the suit, the meteor will be added to the collections of the Portland Museum. And the second, The place where it naturally belongs is in the Free Museum here, and there it will doubtless be deposited. It's obvious to everyone involved, from newspaper writers, to editors, to city administrators, to apparently even the officials at the Lewis and Clark Expo, that they all thought that the Willamette meteorite belonged in Oregon. That the idea of this curio leaving the state was just to never be entertained. I say we get the big fucking rock back. And rightfully, 
Let's return it to the native folk that have the strongest claim to the heavenly visitor. Let's have it at Grand Ronde. Hell, you can put it right next to the casino in an accessible place where those who wish to can worship the meteorite as the Clackamas once did. But let it also be a place where non-native Oregonians can revel in the natural and spiritual majesty of one of Oregon's greatest treasures. Let's bring the big fucking rock from outer space back. Thanks for listening, Apps Kicker, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at ORHistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. You can also support the podcast. Go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. Our email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And coming up on February 19th, 2013, Join resident historian Doug Kank Crispin at the Jack London Bar at 7.30 p.m. for Oregon's Birthday Party. We'll hear odd stories that celebrate Oregon's past from Mr. Kank Crispin, along with guest historians Finn John and Joe Streckert. We'll reveal the winner of our kick-ass diorama contest, we'll have some birthday cake, and enjoy a film viewing of a classic Oregon cinematic gem. Shh, don't tell. It's a surprise. So, come on down to the Jack London Bar on Tuesday, February 19th at 7.30 p.m. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kink Crispin. He's been known to drag heavy objects onto his property and then claim ownership. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.
queen It must be really frightful To attract publicity I do the wrong Shah and Al-Fatah is quite 